0: Let's, uh, I want to, I want to, uh, I got a couple of comments I want to make that because of some stuff that's fresh on my mind that relates to our class, that relates to uh, other kinds of conversations that I've been hearing about the kinds of discussions we have in here, and uh, the, the, I would say, kind of socio-political turmoil in which we find ourselves these days, and um, after that we'll sing, well I, I'll ask you to stand and sing the doxology and we'll pray. I was, uh, I was reminded this week, I was asked uh, about some quotes that I once had used from David Lipscomb. David Lipscomb, from a uh, theological Christian perspective, was quite what we would call conservative from, from a Church of Christ position in many ways would be what we would call conservative with regard to church practices, with regard to sociopolitical practices, he would be decidedly um, liberal, if not radical. Uh, he was um, a fascinating character and I, one of the reasons I especially was mindful of one of these things is I saw Fletcher. Where is Fletcher? He's here. Fletcher. Fletcher Shrigley, for those of you who don't know, is a longtime elder here. And one of his, who F.D. Shrigley was your grandfather or great-grandfather?
1: Grand.
0: Your grandfather. F.D. Shrigley uh, held at his time a viewpoint that was a, a issue of great contention at the time in Churches of Christ, with which David Lipscomb strongly disagreed. And As a matter of fact, it was one of the two big issues that led to the so-called, at least on the surface of it, that led to the split between Churches of Christ and Disciples of Christ. So It was a big deal kind of issue at the time. David Lipscomb held, held one position, F.D. Shrigley held another position. David Lipscomb at the time was kind of the leader, publisher, editor of the Gospel Advocate, which was one of the leading religious magazines in the South, and he wanted to hire F.D. Shrigley, much to the consternation of others, because F.D. Shrigley didn't agree with Lipscomb on his position. And what Lipscomb said was, I want to hire F.D. Shrigley because he loves God, and I don't really care whether or not he agrees with me on this issue as much as first and foremost he loves God and he's seeking the truth, and we need people who are seeking the truth to work together. At another time, David Lipscomb, the way the so-called summer lectureship started, at the time it was Nashville Bible School, later at Lipscomb University, the way the summer, what now we call summer celebration, began was because there was someone who strongly disagreed with Lipscomb's book on civil government. And it was one of the most important books that Lipscomb wrote, one of the most important collection of things he wrote and put out. Very provocative thesis. And the way the lectureship started was that Lipscomb invited someone who had been sharply and publicly critical of Lipscomb's viewpoint to come to the school and take as many nights and as many hours as he needed to make his competing case to Lipscomb's viewpoint. Because he wanted his students to hear very clearly what he had to say and then to hear what the competing viewpoint had to say. At another point, Lipscomb said this. In critiquing sectarianism, He said, a sectarian is one who defends everything his party holds or that will help his party and opposes all that his party does not hold or that will injure the strength and popularity of his party. The partisan takes it for granted. Everything his party holds is right and everything the other party holds is wrong and to be opposed. He sees no good in the other party. He sees no wrong in his own party. What Lipscomb knew was that if, if we are going to be a service to the world, it will not be by means of sectarian partisanship, but it will be by an altogether different sort of socio-political order, which is we listen to each other, mm-hmm. and we challenge each other, and we push each other, and we keep listening to each other, and we hear what it is that other people have to say. And any sort of defensiveness that immediately opposes somebody because they might be affiliated with somebody else that we don't like indicates a a kind of soul sickness that does no good for the church and no good for the common good. Down the hallway this morning, uh, for example, there's a visitor who um, when he was young, his father was killed in the Congolese war. His mother and his two brothers went to a refugee camp in Rwanda of all places for their safety. And within a short period of time militants came through their refugee camp. He never saw his two brothers again, presumably dead. The next morning he went back to find his mother in their tent and he found her corpse burnt beyond recognition in their tent and now he lives wondering each day whether or not he shall get to stay another year here or be left and required to leave again. There are, um, there's deep brokenness all around us. Uh, There are more people in prison in this country than in any history of any country in the history of the world. Per capita imprisonment rate is greater than this, this country for example, then it was it was true of the, of the communists. Of course, as somebody said to me a year ago, in the, communi- in the communist era, they would just kill you rather than put you in prison. Um, but the affliction of brokenness and the affliction of pain and the affliction of people who are crying out to be hurt. And people who are hurting sometimes don't have quite the the grace to say things in their pain that we might wish they would have to say when they're in pain. Mm-hmm. But God forbid those of us who live in a relative comfort and a relative peace mm-hmm. to discount everything everybody else says in some other party That's right. or some other group mm-hmm. because we somehow feel threatened by it. Mm-hmm. Let us have the courage to listen to people. That's right. And let us have the courage to listen well To be able to take what's useful and helpful and true, to raise questions about what we find not true or not helpful, and keep on going. With that, let's stand and sing the doxology. Or not. Let's pray first, please. Oh, gracious God, we give thanks for the gifts of this day and for your mercies and for your kindness to us. We pray, oh God, especially today for Darlene Gann and the passing of her aunt. We pray for Nancy Mansfield and the passing of her mother. We pray for Deborah Butler who continues to suffer with her injuries. We pray, oh God, for this church and we pray that you would help us to be a community that ministers reconciliation to the world. We pray that you would help us to be so confident in your love that we would avoid justifying ourselves. We pray that we would trust so greatly that you have justified us through the way of Christ that we may be willing to love in a way that does not have to defend ourselves to argue for our own right but will seek to bear witness to the way of Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Christ and we pray together now as Jesus taught us to pray.
1: This morning leads right into what I'm about to say. First of all, let me uh, let me go over some stuff. Um, I thought that maybe by now the the, the lessons that uh, we've gone over um, would have helped out in some way, but I, I still see a problem. Um, I'm afraid what we're saying is still not coming across the right way, and and I just want to deal with that this morning. Uh, I know what the media is saying. I see that. I I mean, all you gotta do is pull up Facebook, turn on the news, all of that good stuff right there. So let me see if I can say it or teach it in a different way this morning. In some of the conversations that I've heard here in class, um, some of the stuff that I've seen online and and face-to-face conversations, about the subject of race, it seems like this issue keeps coming up. Somebody always brings up, well, what about the issues in the the black community? And the majority of these comments, I'm not picking on you, I'm just telling the truth. The majority of these comments are coming from white men. And the reason why I point that out is because y'all are the ones that we need in order to move forwards. Because y'all will be the ones that people will listen to. As a black man, I can only teach you so much, but moving forwards, white men are gonna have to be the ones to take this thing forwards. Have you heard any of these comments? What about black on black crime? What about how blacks view other blacks? What about Chicago? anybody heard any of those comments (laughs) well I submit to you today that uh, if you've been bringing these these questions up in the conversation between blacks and whites please stop it because this is not the proper context for that conversation those of us in the black community know that we have issues we know that and we know we have things that we need to take care of but our conversation is about how blacks and whites can reconcile and move forwards, not focusing on deflecting the attention <laughs> elsewhere. How many of y'all have heard about the Willie Lynch letter? The hunter. Some people say it's a hoax, but others believe that it's real. I tend to believe the latter. In this letter, it is explained that the violent methods of handling slaves were inefficient and counterproductive. It is suggested that slaveholders, I'm sorry, it suggested that slaveholders learn to exploit differences such as age and skin color to cause division between those slaves. Minister Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam quoted this speech in the Million Man March in 1995. It was also quoted by Denzel Washington uh, in, 2000, uh, in his 2007 movie called The Great Debaters. Maybe this seems unbelievable to you. But let me ask you this. Have you heard about the difference between the field Negro and the house Negro? The field Negro tended to have a clear disdain for the slave master, versus the house Negro reaped a few benefits from being in the house, and tended to show some sort of loyalty to the slave master. Naturally, if a slave was in a house more, their skin would not darken as much as the slave in the field. So do you see the rivalry starting to build? The separation of these slaves by Massa started this internal rivalry within the slaves. How many of you are familiar with the term colorism? All right. Colorism is a term that was coined by Alice Walker in 1982. Colorism is a form of prejudice, or discrimination in which people are treated differently based on social meanings attached to skin color. What do you think is going to happen if those in power show favoritism and approval towards those who have lighter skin and straighter hair? Those who have uh, who don't have any, attrib- any of those attributes start to form hatred towards those uh, who do and will attempt to change who they are to fit into the society Uh, to fit into what society is portraying to them. Sad to say, but I used to suffer from colorism. How many of you have heard of the letter that King Leopold II of Belgium wrote to the colonial missionaries in 1883? Anybody heard of that one? Brother Hunter, again, brother's on that, that, that research, isn't he? In this letter, this is what King Leopold said now I'm going to change some of the words but I want you to know that he used the words in this letter this was written to Christian missionaries now he said your action will be directed essentially to the younger ones for they won't revolt when the recommendation of the priest is contradictory to their parents teachings the children have to learn to obey what the missionary recommends Who is the father of their soul? You must singularly insult, uh, I'm sorry, insist on their total submission and obedience. Avoid developing the spirit in the schools. Teach students to read and not to reason. There, dear patriots, are some of the principles that you must apply. You will find many other books which will be given to you at the end of this conference evangelize the Negroes but he didn't use Negroes so that they stay forever in submission to the white colonialist so that they never revolt against the restraints they are undergoing recite every day happy are those who are weeping because the kingdom of God is for them convert always the blacks by using the whip. keep their women in nine months of submission to work freely for us Force them to pay you in sign of recognition, goats, chicken or eggs every time you visit their villages and make sure that Negroes never become rich. Seeing every day that it's impossible for the rich to enter heaven, make them pay tax each week at Sunday mass. Use the money supposed for the poor to build flourishing buildings, business centers, institute a confessional system, which allows you to be. Good detectives denouncing any black that has a different consciousness contrary to that of the decision maker. Teach the Negroes to forget their heroes and adore only ours. He killed 10 million 10 million Africans. That last line strikes me deeply. 10 million Africans, 6 million Jews. As I said in a previous class, Western Christianity has taught the blackness out of us, including leaders of our own tribe. As I sit in seminary, I can't help but to think, why am I not learning from scholars like Dr. Howard Thurman, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, Dr. Aubrey Hendricks, Dr. James Cohn, and others? Why are the scholars that I'm learning from every day in class white men? Could it be because they are teaching from the culture that is familiar to them? Could it be that these are the only scholars that they know? Regardless of the reason, the culture that has been created is that only white male scholars can speak to us about theological issues. I submit to you today, that is not the case. Let's take a look at the African American culture within the American context. (coughs) We were stripped of most of our African ancestry, so our ancestors had to start from scratch. The, American, uh, the African-American culture is one that is rich with talent, creativity, and pure genius. I watched a documentary the other day that talked about how African-American men ha- were not allowed to join clubs like the Boy Scouts. So they started their own clubs. I remember my father telling me stories like this. I also categorized, uh, always categorized them as fraternities or gangs, but that was me on the outside looking in. So I wasn't even looking at it from the proper context. He said that they were clubs. So now let's, let's look, this is just a brief history, y'all. I couldn't get everything in here, but just, just going through, let's look at the 1960s and 70s. In that time frame, we had a time in this country where black leaders were fighting for equality. This gave rise to the Black Panther Party. It was founded in 1966 in Oakland, California by Dr. Huey P. Newton and uh, Bob Seeley. They started this group to protect the black citizens in neighborhoods from police brutality. Does that sound familiar? They also started social programs like the Free Breakfast for uh, Children program and community health clinics. Sounds good, right? Well, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover didn't think so. In 1970, he said that the Panthers free breakfast program was the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. Feeding poor kids was the greatest threat to the internal security of this country, wow. the, The leaders of the Panther Party were painted in a negative manner in the media. They were imprisoned, assassinated, or exiled. This was the same time as Dr. King and Malcolm X most people only know, know negative stories of brother Malcolm. He was actually very influential in getting black people to love who God made them to be black and beautiful. This was totally against the society what society had taught black since they came over in slave ships. So as you can see Malcolm was a threat to the control that the oppressive authorities uh, like to have over African-Americans. Even though civilians uh, excuse me, even though civilians may have pulled the trigger, government agencies were behind the assassination of uh, Malcolm X, MLK, Megar Evers, and other civil rights leaders. These agencies were protected by the law. When a person uh, has been in a situation where people who look like them are being murdered just for being black, and then, they, they, uh, and then you have laws to help justify those deaths, what do you think will happen to the mindset of the citizens that are on the wrong side of oppression? I submit that it would be hard to respect laws and agencies that continue to keep you oppressed and will then justify your death if you fight against it. So there you have it. The culture has been created. The culture was created by nationalistic and, um, and oppressive leaders. They are no different from the slave masters in the early years of this country. They are just like the drug kingpins. Even though they may not be getting their hands dirty, they are the reason why the people act the way they act. They created the self-hatred culture so they could stay powerful and wealthy. This is why I said what I said earlier. Please stop talking about Chicago, black-on-black crime, and police-hating black men unless you are going to condemn the system that created this mindset to begin with. As our strong black leaders were taken off the scene in, uh, 19, in the 1960s and 70s, the black community was left with artists and athletes to give us some form of liberation. There were so many songs that were, uh, that were created during this time frame that spoke to the problems of the black community these songs literally serve as the psalms for, for African Americans living in that era. Songs like What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke, Chain Gang by Sam Cooke, Inner City Blues, Marvin Gaye, Mercy Mercy Me, Marvin Gaye, We People Who Are Darker Than Blue, Curtis Mayfield, Diamond In The Back, Curtis Mayfield, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, James Brown, Someday we'll all be free, Donny Hathaway. We're gonna make it, Little Milton. Zoom, The Commodores. Stand by me, Benny King. Keep your head to the sky, earth, wind, and fire. These are just a few songs that the black community had to find peace and encouragement outside of the church setting. As time went along, we were introduced to this new form of music called rap. Rap picked up where a lot of music in the previous two generations left off uh, with its uh, encouraging social and political language. We had rappers like the X-Clan, KRS-One, Public Enemy, Arrested Development, A Tribe Called Quest, Talib Kweli, Ice Cube, The Roots, Scarface, Poor Righteous Teachers, Naj, Most Deaf, Common, and more. These rappers may not have come from the best neighborhoods. They're, they may not have the best reputations by our standards, but their songs dealt with teaching their leaders to embrace our blackness, teaching their listeners to embrace embrace our blackness, no matter our social economic background, and to be proud of who God made us to be. They also talk about the struggles that blacks were faced with. In uh, neighborhoods and society at large. I want to do a little experiment here. What do you see? When you see Tupac Shakur, what do you think? Great artist. Great artist. Who else? Poet. Poet? Somebody said he was killed. What else? Come on now. I know everybody don't see him in a, in a positive light now. The residual of the black Panther. Residual of the Black Panther movement. His mother was a Black Panther. Thug Life, come on now. I know somebody's thinking <laughs> Thug Life. Uh, this this dude stayed in trouble. He had plenty of problems, right?
0: West Coast, East Coast. West Coast, East Coast. East Coast. There it is.
1: <laughs> but did you know that Tupac had a song called Brenda's Got a Baby? Probably never heard that song, have you? No. It was based on the true story about a young girl that was sexually molested by her cousin, and now she was 12 years old having a baby. She actually threw the baby in a a dumpster, but she went back and got the baby because the baby started crying. She didn't know what to do, so she went back home, didn't have much of a family life, so she ended up out on the street selling drugs and wound up in prostitution. As you can see, she lost her life trying to make some money to take care of her baby. At the beginning of the song, this guy asked, he said, why does that concern us? That's Brenda's family's problem. Tupac said that he wanted to explain why this affected the entire community. You ever heard the song, Keep Your Head Up? And Keep Your Head Up, he encouraged black women, young black women, young black men to treat black women right. He encouraged people in the ghetto and... It was a very social and political message in that. This is Tupac now, thug life. He had a song called Dear Mama, like Brother Hunter was saying earlier. His, his mother was in the Black Panther at one time. She wound up being a single mother trying to raise two kids on welfare. The song was a tribute to his mother. He talked about not having a father figure, so he wound up on the streets gangbanging, but he never forgot about his mama. Never forgot about her, and she never gave up on her. Y'all know this guy? Biggie Smalls. Baby, baby. (laughs) Biggie Smalls, the notorious B-I-G. What y'all know about him? East Coast. East Coast. (laughs) What else? Parental advisory.
0: (laughs) Parental advisory, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Did you know that he had a song called Juicy? In this song, he talked about how his teachers, he dedicated this song to his teachers who told him that he would never amount to be anything. How's that for education? You tell a young man who is already from poverty, you're never going to amount to anything. And he confessed to selling drugs. He did. But look at why he sold the drugs. What's a high school dropout going to do? in an already poor neighborhood. Where's you going to find a job at? Can you imagine your educators telling you that you were never going to amount to anything? And it also talked about how um, rap helped him to get off the street to live a respectable life. More money, more problems. He said the more money you come across, the more problems you see. I used to love to listen to this song right here because he was dead on with that right there. we start making a little bit more money, people start getting jealous. That came from a rapper. Somebody who was painted negatively in the media. Sky's the limit. Anybody in here ever been dirt poor? Where you couldn't afford anything? I know one person. I'm not going to call any names. But the sky's the limit. This is the encouragement that this man was given. <coughs> the Ghetto Boys. What y'all know about them? Little Bushwick Bill right there. He, he, he's a little person and he has an attitude out of this world. <laughs> the Scarface over there. That's, he's one of those rappers that I listed earlier. Ghetto Boys. What do y'all think we gotta see these guys? Wouldn't want to run into them in a dark alley. Wouldn't want to <laughs> run into them in a dark alley. Rough looking, right? Look at this right here. I used to love to listen to this song. Matter of fact, I listen to it probably once a week now because of all the stuff that's going on. They said that the world is a ghetto. This is how they view the world. The chorus says, what we see every day, living in the ghetto, that is where I stay. What we do to get by, live or die, the whole world is a ghetto. Could you imagine living like that every day? Where you don't know if you're going to live or die? They have to learn to survive, make it off of nothing. They talk about the poor in these communities that I cared about. They talked about police brutality, the world drugs, prostitution, black on black crime, and talked about how they were treated like animals living in a jungle. These are just a few examples of how the hip hop culture has played a part in shaping my theology. Do I agree with everything that these rappers said or did? No, of course not. Just like I don't agree with everything that I read and hear from preachers, elders, Bible scholars, and theologians. So just because I quote somebody, that doesn't mean that I agree with everything that they say. And they give me access to a world that I'm not familiar with. They help me to find some kind of connection to that world. One may say you shouldn't listen to that because it's full of profanity and themes that you shouldn't be listening to as a minister. But I submit this to you. The text that we know is the Bible is actually a collection of X-rated stories that have been cleaned up. We cleaned them up over the years. Just like the lives of these artists, uh, just like the lives that these artists have experienced, the stories in the Bible are raw, ugly, profane, and brutal, <coughs> but it is reality. And I'm sorry that that doesn't fit into your fairy tale story that you want Christianity to be you don't believe that the Bible is X rated and raw read Judges. I'll never forget the first time I heard that story, I was like, that ain't in the Bible. There's no way that that's in the Bible. And then when I read it, I was like, that's in the Bible. <laughs> I was like, man, that's, that's pretty X rated right there. So if I had never shared this information with y'all this morning, some of you may have never thought that this is the culture that shaped my theology over the years. It wasn't until the Psalms class that I had with Dr. Uh, Terry Briley that I realized how much uh, influence music had over how I viewed theology and life. Before that class, it was like I was living a double life. I now understand that we have falsely created a secular spiritual world it is all bound together and cannot be separated. Because I am familiar with the hip-hop culture, it has helped me to see the importance of seeing life through the eyes of oppressed people instead of condemning them. I'll close with these two stories right here. One day I was standing outside of the shop, talking to some young men that had served time in jail. I believe a few of them were convicted felons. As, as we talked, they felt like I had made it in life. Now here I am wanting more. And all they wanted was what I have. Wow. Remember what the Bible said about the eyes of man never being satisfied? I proceeded to ask them the following question. What can a guy like me do for someone who has had issues with being in and out of the system? They said that the best thing that you could do is be encouraging. We don't trust many people, so just encourage us. And while we were talking, I got to experience a little of their everyday life. A a squad car kept riding past us. One of the guys informed me that each time the cops rolled through, they were checking a new person to see if they had an outstanding warrant on them. We were standing around minding our own business and having a good time talking, but they were treated like they were targets. How would you like to live your life every day, knowing that you were being hunted like a wild animal and the hunter couldn't wait to cage you up again? I have a childhood friend who I recently talked to and he shared a story with me about How he was deathly ill and how the authorities would not take him to get the proper medical attention. I've known this guy my whole life. And we've been big boys for a long time. But when he showed me the picture of how much weight he had lost behind bars, I immediately got mad. He was looking at the fact that he shouldn't have been there in the first place. I was looking at the fact of where's the humanity. I told him that no matter what he did, he shouldn't have to be treated like an animal. I found out that he had uh, uh, severe problems with his thyroid. He said that when his family talked to a lawyer, listen to this, they were told that they would have had a better case if he had died. This is the reality of so many in our society. This is why it's imperative for us to stop jumping to conclusions and to get to know those who are not like us. This is the reason why so many protests. Those who, cannot, uh, who can make the, cho- uh, the changes refuse to do it. This is the us versus them culture that the nationalistic oppressor has created. If you benefit from the system, you tend to see the world differently from the eyes of the disinherited. Therefore, your theology has been skewed and it is in jeopardy of being against the cause of Christ. I submit to you this morning that even though we may be baptized believers, we cannot, and I repeat, cannot truly be living for Jesus until we learn to humble ourselves and walk with the oppressed in their struggles, just like Jesus did while he was here on earth. We got to do it.